Thanks, Johnny. Uh, this reading is from Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16, and you can find that on page 1000 in the uh, Bibles that have been handed out. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you here in church this morning. Welcome, and uh, it'd be great if you could turn to their passage in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, it's on page 1,000 if you're using one of the church Bibles. I'll just rearrange the furniture a little bit and then we'll start. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks and you speak into our lives and wherever we are in our relationship with you or our non-relationship with you, you're a God who's always speaking. Because your passion is people, human beings who've been made in your image who you want to draw into relationship with yourself. People you want to turn right way up. Because frankly, we're all messed up and upside down. And you love us. And so, Father, as we come to this final section of Matthew, this story about Jesus, about the big story, the great story that you invite us to be part of, Father, please, would you by your Holy Spirit speak into our hearts, our minds, into our wills, and help us to respond in a way that's appropriate. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, for me, there are some questions that keep circling back. You know the kind of thing where you think about it, and then it goes away, and then you think about it again, and it comes back, and, and every time the question comes up, uh, it raises new perspectives on the question. For me, one of the questions that keeps circling around is the question, what's the church for? 
When I say the church, I don't mean some kind of ethereal, spiritual, vague, notional church. You know, the church. I mean the concrete, lived-out reality of what church is in relationships of human beings who meet together, who meet together to hear God's Word read and spoken about and discussed, who meet together in the ordinariness of their lives and interact. I mean, what does it mean for a church like St. Stephen's or from any number of local churches across the world? What is the church for? Why are we here? Ask that question and you'll get all kinds of answers. In my experience, people will talk in terms of liturgy, transcendence, a sense of worship. They will use all kinds of spiritual terms to explain what church is for. Other people will talk about social cohesion. The church is a force for good in society. It draws people together. It does good works, like looks after old people and young people. It provides a focus in the community. It's a way of cementing a community together. It's a good thing. For some people, though, the church is a best neutral. It's an irrelevance. And there are even some who would see the church as dangerous, something to be controlled because it is perceived as being a source even of evil in our society, and we would be better off without it. Or at least we want to make sure we can coordinate off in such a way that we can protect ourselves from the influences of the church. What's the church for? At the end of Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 28, that Stephen read to us, we get an insight into what the church is for, for in the mind of Jesus Christ. Here are the instructions at the end of his earthly ministry that Jesus gives to the 11 followers of his, the disciples, and they are the foundation for what church is about. What is it? Go and make disciples of all nations. That's it. That's what we're here for, to go and make disciples of all nations. And I want you to notice how it begins. Jesus says, go. It's extraordinary. I've spent most of my life in church, churches. My parents were Christians. I was taken to church. I've always known about church. And almost every church I've ever been in has functioned as if Jesus said the message is, come. Come to church and find out about Jesus. Come to Alpha. Come to Christianity Explained. Come to a Christmas service. Or they have seen church as if 
the church is a kind of like one of those ancient soldiers standing on the battlements, looking out and watching for the ships to appear. Agamemnon is coming. <laughs> and the watchman stands there and says, they're here. Church is watchman. Jesus says, go. The church is meant to be a force that's on the move. Matthew's gospel is in effect addressed to a community of people who are on the move. Go. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come, that prayer is meant to be a prayer on the way that we pray. And so often what we do is we pray it in our buildings. And by the way, our, our language doesn't help, does it? We go to church. And what we mean is we go to a building. Well, I'm really grateful for buildings. And I really think that buildings ought to reflect the gospel. There ought to be something about the space in which we meet which communicates the message through the building. Buildings are really important. They keep the sun off and they keep the rain out. And I, for one, am grateful for that. And sometimes they're not so good at doing either, which is a great pain at times. But church is about going. And so when we pray, our Father in heaven, may your kingdom come. What that means is this, as I go to work tomorrow morning, may your kingdom come as I go. As I do my work, may your kingdom come. As I witness through my life and through my work and through my words, may your kingdom come as I go. As I go into my marriage, may your kingdom come in my marriage. May your kingdom come in my family. May your kingdom come in the way that I use my wealth in every area of life. As I go, may your kingdom come. As we go out into the community, as we go shopping, as we mix with people at the school gates, as we mix with the people in the community, when we have them round, because we're hospitable, because Christians are meant to be hospitable, may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come as we go. And we don't just pray it for ourselves. We are to pray it as the community of Jesus Christ, the church for each other. We pray for our brothers and sisters and we pray as you go to work tomorrow. May the kingdom come. May your will, Father, be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we go, may your kingdom come. We go and make disciples. And notice there are no limits to who we make disciples of. It's all nations. We go into any community and every community, whether they're hostile or not, and we are to bring the kingdom through what we say and through how we live, through what we demonstrate. May your kingdom come across the ethnic groups. May it come geographically in the area in which we live and in the areas beyond to the ends of the earth. There are no limits and however dangerous it may be and however challenging it may be for us, the commission to the church, if the church is being the church, is to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. And who's to do it? Do you notice what Jesus says? He addresses it to his disciples. You do it. 
Sometimes those of us who are really theological, we get very precious at this point. It goes something like this. A work of bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, bringing them into a relationship with God through what Christ has done, is a work of the Spirit of God. No human being can make a Christian. It's all God's work. Well, that's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. And do you know the Holy Spirit is really good at doing what he does? Really good at doing what he does. And we must never forget, never forget, that we can only do what God has called us to do in the power of the Spirit because it is true. I cannot change anybody's heart. We may be able to move their emotions, but we can't change their wills and bring them into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. There's the work of the Spirit. But Jesus does not say, pray that the Holy Spirit will work in people's lives and make disciples. Who is to go? You. Us. We make disciples of Jesus Christ. We are called to participate with God in what he is doing. He will do his stuff. He doesn't need us, but he has chosen to work through us. Here's the principle. God has brought certain people into our sphere, individually and corporately as a church. If we do not go, they will not hear the gospel. Because we are the ones who are to take the message of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who are to make disciples. If we don't do it, will God find somebody else? Quite probably. But woe betide us. Because he said to us, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. That is what we are called to do. We are to participate in what God is doing. He has chosen to work through human beings. Sometimes I've wondered why. In moments of leadership stress, I've thought, why didn't he send angels? He's chosen to work through us. So if we don't do it, yes, he may find somebody else to do it, but he'll do it through human beings because that's how he works, mostly. I love the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Do you know that story? There are more than 5,000 people and they've gathered to hear Jesus and um, they've been around, hanging around listening to Jesus for a long time and there's no McDonald's nearby. They're out in the countryside and there's no Nando's either. There are some blessings, I'm sure, about living in the first century. Uh, there's the two of them. And Jesus says, they're hungry. So he turns to the disciples and says, give them something to eat. And the disciples say, Jesus, you're such a joker. It's a marginal reference. I know it's not in the actual text. You bear with me. It's my last Sunday. So Jesus says, what have you got? And they said, well, we've got a few loaves and a few fish. There's enough for a snack lunch for half a person. <laughs> what happens? Well, Jesus takes the small, number of bread, small amount of bread and the fish, and, and he says grace. He prays. 
And then what happens? The disciples go around and feed the crowd. Who feeds the crowd? It's Jesus, isn't it? He does a miracle. Yeah. Who feeds the crowd? Supposing you're sitting on row three or row 33, what would you have seen? As far as I can tell, you would have seen Jesus make a prayer. And then you would have seen these followers of Jesus go out and start giving out bread and fish. And if somebody had asked what happened, you would have said, well, I think Jesus said a prayer, and then the disciples kind of handed this stuff out, and they fed us. It's amazing. We didn't have to pay anything. If the disciples had not moved, what would have happened? If they hadn't gone out and fed the crowd, what would have happened? 5,000 plus very hungry people, that's what. Who makes disciples? We do. In the power of the Spirit, yes. We can do nothing without Him. But we do it. And if we don't do it, it doesn't happen. That's the principle. That's the principle of participation. That is our role to make followers of Jesus Christ, to make disciples. And I, I, do, I, I do love this last bit. Do you notice how it starts off? The 11 gather, the 11 intimate circle of Jesus' followers who've been with him for almost all of his ministry, three years or so. They're kind of the inner circle. 11 of them are there because Judas has betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And so 11 of them assemble in the north of Israel and it says some worship and they worshipped him. Do you notice the other bit? But some doubted. Some doubted. How does that happen? How does that happen? The 11 followers of Jesus and some of them doubted. Who would have thought? And do you notice what Jesus does not do? He doesn't say, okay, believers to the right, doubters to the left. <laughs> you believers, you go and make disciples of all nations and I'll, I'm going to be with you, doubters. You've got a lot of sorting out to do. I'm a patient man, but, you know, get a move on. Sort yourself out. Don't wait too long. And when you've sorted yourself out, then you can go. He doesn't say that. He says to both of them, go. You see, they turned up. They weren't complete outsiders, but they just had all kinds of questions, didn't they? And isn't that like us? I have never met a Christian or at least a Christian who was telling the truth or was in their right mind, who said, I've sorted everything out. Never. I haven't sorted everything out. I have all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts and all kinds of issues. I have a black box that I've talked about to some of you sometime here with all the questions I don't know the answer to, and every so often I take them out and have a look at them and get depressed. 
And sometimes I'm encouraged because I think, yes, I think I've got some insight into that, and others I just think, I've still no idea. And then I discover a whole bunch of other questions I don't know the answer to. If you wait until you've sorted everything out, you'll never do what Jesus has asked us to do, commanded us to do, which is to go. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you go. You may have questions, but you go. All of us are to do this job of making followers of Jesus Christ. So how do we do it? Notice what Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them. Baptism. Baptism is about initiation. It's about joining. It's about participation. When you get baptized, it's about being drawn into a relationship with God himself. This amazing God who is relationship, who is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being a Christian is about being in a relationship with the living God. But it's also about joining the community of his family, his people, the church. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized into his family. There is no such thing as somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ who is not a member of the family of Jesus Christ. Because you are baptized into the family of Jesus Christ. The important thing is then to live that out as a member of the family of Jesus Christ. So baptism is about belonging to God and about belonging to Jesus. As I said, I think the order may be significant, baptized and then teaching. See, baptism is something like this. Somebody hears the message of Jesus Christ, they hear the message about how Jesus has done everything that's necessary to deal with the mess in us. The mess we're aware of and the mess we're not aware of. What the Bible calls our sin, our alienation from God and often from each other. Jesus has done absolutely everything that's necessary for that to bring forgiveness and a relationship with God and new life and a new beginning and a new purpose in this life and a new hope and a new purpose for the future, for eternity. Because as Johnny said, the story goes on forever. And people hear that message and they hear the call to repent and believe. And what's to repent and believe? It simply means this, I am willing to give my life to Jesus Christ because I believe he's inviting even me and he's done everything that's necessary for me to be forgiven and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I realize I don't need to do everything because Jesus has done everything. And so I give my life to Jesus Christ and I begin that relationship with him. Baptism is the beginning. The uh, American theologian described discipleship as a bit like an apprenticeship. I find that really helpful. A disciple is an apprentice. And baptism is about signing up for an apprenticeship. Some of you got baptized as children, that's okay. I'm really happy with that. I'm an Anglican. Your parents signed you up. 
to an apprenticeship when they got you baptized. Some of you did it as adults. I don't care when you did it. But baptism is about signing up to an apprenticeship and the disciple is an apprentice, a learner. So baptism is the beginning and then, then, is the process of learning what that means. Serving the apprenticeship. Hearing what it's about to follow Jesus Christ in every area of life. And sometimes I think... In churches, we get this so muddled. We almost put them the other way around. It's almost as if we say to people, you need to serve at least some part of your apprenticeship before you can be initiated. There are certain standards you need to meet. There are certain areas of life that you need to get sorted out before you can become a follower of Jesus Christ and so get baptized. And so we draw lines. We make assessments of what repentance looks like. You must get your sex life sorted out. You must get your money sorted out to some degree or other, or whatever it is. And we draw the lines. And often they're very arbitrary. And you know what? That's not the gospel. What that does is it creates a sense of superiority in those of us who draw lines. It imposes guilt on people. Yes, we need to say to people, you need to count the cost of following Jesus Christ. It will affect absolutely every area of your life because you give the whole of your life to Jesus Christ. Your money, your wealth, your children, your marriage, your sex life, everything. But what will that look like? Well, there are some broad terms that you can use, some broad ideas you can get, but mostly, most of us have, in fact, all of us have no idea what that will look like. When I began the journey with Jesus Christ, I had no idea about what that would involve. There were all kinds of things in me that I didn't know I needed to repent of and discovered. And so when we draw the line, we, we give the impression that we know where the line should be. There is no line. The gospel says Jesus has done everything that's necessary. You don't need to get your life sorted out before you can sign up to be a follower of Jesus. But let me just tell you, it will affect everything. And repentance and belief is saying, I am willing to trust what Jesus has done. I'm willing to trust that he's invited me to step out in this relationship with him to begin an apprenticeship. And I'm willing to trust him that he will deliver on his promise to bring life to me and wholeness and forgiveness. And so I trust my marriage to him. I trust my priorities, my money, my children, everything. Make followers of Jesus Christ. By the way, you know there are going to be some moments when you're involved in disciple making. And by the way, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're involved in discipleship making and we are always apprenticeship, apprentices. We're always learning. Um, I'm not quite sure how an apprenticeship works, but uh, this is my understanding of an apprenticeship. You sign up 
and somebody takes you on or a firm takes you on. In the old days, it would have been the master carpenter or whatever it was. And what they do is they commit themselves to their apprentice. They commit themselves to spend time. They show them how to do certain techniques and then they get them to do it and realize that the apprentice has just wasted a great deal of wood and it's very expensive and it's very time consuming and they've given them exercises to do and said you need to master that, you need to master that and they keep getting it wrong and they keep getting it wrong and the master gets very frustrated and maybe has to spend weekends, give extra time. There is a cost to the master carpenter or whatever it is in training the apprentice. That's how it works. It's the same kind of thing in discipleship making. Here's the principle. There are times when as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to realize that there are some costs of discipleship that you think you can barely endure. Somebody maybe has shown you, the Bible clearly says this, and you say, if I follow Jesus Christ in that, that's going to wreck my life. I can't imagine my life without that or whatever it is. Huge cost of discipleship. And sometimes I think we do discipleship in an autocratic way. We say, this is what the Bible says, and it's going to cost you, and I, I want you to know I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to be cheering you on, but you have to bear the cost. You have to decide whether or not you are going to follow Jesus in that area of your life. That is not, not Christian discipleship making. Here's the principle. The more costly the discipleship challenge to the disciple, the greater the cost to be borne by the disciple maker by the church. We share the burden. Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul, share one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Have you got the principle? If you're being challenged in some area of your life that's been pointed out to you, then your church family needs to bear the cost as well. We share the cost and so often we don't. bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Participation. What are we called to do? Make followers of Jesus Christ. And now notice how Jesus ends. Surely I'm with you even to the end of the age. That's great, isn't it? So we go off on this business of discipleship, making Jesus says, I'm with you. And I realize only fairly recently, how woolly and vague and inadequate my thinking on that was. It was as if Jesus was saying, you know, I, I'm your spiritual comfort blanket. You can't see me, but I want you to know that I'm there. And, and you can't hear me. Well, you can read the Bible. But you, but you know, I'm cheering you on. You can't hear me cheering you on, but I want you to know that I'm there cheering you on as you go off and make disciples, as you go and speak to people about Jesus, as you live this out, this life of following Jesus Christ. I'm with you. That's not what Jesus is saying, merely. It is meant to be a comfort, that's true. 
But you notice how it begins? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when we go and Jesus says, I am with you, it means we go with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. When we go and tell people about the gospel and we call them to repent and believe and sometimes we think to ourselves, how could I possibly do that? What right do I have to tell people and to call people to that? Jesus says, you have my authority to do it and you do it in my power. Because as you go, I am with you with my power and authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. And when you have to make hard discipleship calls on one another, and it's costly, I'm with you. You have my authority to do this. You do it with my power. And when there are issues in the church community and you've got to do some kind of discipline, Jesus is saying, I want you to know that you have my backing on this, you do this with my authority, so go and do it. Is that a comfort? Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very particular kind of comfort, isn't it? What are we called to do? To make followers of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, and we do that by going out in the power and the authority of Jesus So what's the church for? It's to make disciples in the authority and with the authority of Jesus Christ. If we're going to do that effectively, we have to embody it. Notice the language teaching them everything I have commanded you to do. As we go, as people encounter us as the community of followers of Jesus Christ, as they hear the message that we proclaim, they need to see it. And where's the primary way that they will see it? It's very interesting. We were looking at this a couple of weeks ago as we were a little earlier on in Matthew's Gospel. The kind of markers that we often use of spiritual health are not the markers Jesus uses. The place where we demonstrate what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ and that the kingdom has come and we are living out this new life is in the ordinary areas of life. It's in our marriage, it's in our handling of money, it's how we do our parenting. It's all those kinds of things. Jesus is far more interested in how your marriage is going than how often you read the Bible. He's far more interested in how you're doing your parenting or how you're handling your money or your sex lives than how often you pray. really. Is prayer necessary? Absolutely. It's like breathing. If you stop breathing, you die. Is reading the Bible necessary? Of course it is. 
but the measure of the effectiveness of a work of the Spirit of God in a person's life is not how often they read the Bible. It's what happens in their marriages and the raising of their children and how they handle their money and what their priorities are. It's lived out in the ordinary areas of life. And if we want people to hear the gospel and respond to it, they need to see that it's affected us. The effectiveness of our gospel presentation is directly linked with the integrity of the lives that we live as followers of Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before people that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the good deeds, the markets, marriage, family, money, and so on. The ordinary areas of life. I'm almost at the end. It's okay. And we've only got one song and then I'm done. So don't panic. I, um, I've long since reached the age where it's, uh, it's quite a good thing to get a regular checkup from your GP. It's probably a good thing to do anyway, however young you are. Anyway, I went to the GP recently and I said, um, uh, you haven't seen me for some time. <gasps> he said, who are you? Um, <laughs> So I said, I, I think you ought to do a checkup on me. And so he arranged to have more blood taken from me than I realized I'd got. Um, and he did some other tests and so on. And then he said, you know, at your age, <laughs> uh, there are things that we can see and there are things that we can't see. So we really probably ought to do a bit of an investigation in some of the areas that you can't see. So... Nearly two weeks ago, I found myself lying in a hospital bed, freshly purged, <laughs> waiting to be taken into theater. And there was a song going through my head. It wasn't a Christian song. It was a song penned, I mentioned it some time ago, to a couple, a couple of weeks ago to some of you song written by Mark Hollis, who was the leading member of a, an 80s band called Talk Talk. And it's the last track of one of the last albums the band put out. It's called Wealth. And the lines go, and he, he, he sings this a little bit like Tom York at his most anguished if you don't know who Tom York is, don't worry. <laughs> and and I, it's so difficult to hear the words at the beginning, and then he rises to a crescendo, and then his voice almost fades into inaudibility. Create upon my flesh. Create approach upon my breath. Bring me salvation if I fear. Take my freedom, sacred love. And then at the end, 
those lines recur. Take my freedom. Let my freedom up. Forgiving me a sacred love. I don't know what Mark Hollis was thinking about when he wrote those words, and I don't know what the band were thinking about as they played in that darkened space with the candles and the incense and the atmospheric lighting, turning it almost into a worship space as they recorded. I don't know what he was thinking. I do know that those words in so many ways encapsulate more clearly than anything else what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Take my freedom. Here's my marriage. Take my freedom. Here are my children. Take my freedom. Here's my money. Take my freedom. Here's my sex life. Take my freedom. Here's every part of life. Take my freedom for giving me a sacred love. And here's the paradox, the great secret of Christianity that isn't really a secret at all, that when you give your freedom to Jesus Christ, you gain freedom and you lose slavery. And so I was on the bed and wondering what they were going to discover from my freshly purged body. And those words take my freedom. We're going through my head. Lord Jesus, take my freedom. You gave everything for me. Take my freedom. Those should be the words of every disciple every day. Take my freedom. The words that should begin our Christian life are signing up for apprenticeship. Take my freedom. And they should characterize every day of our life take my freedom. Of course, it's one thing to say those words when you're lying on a hospital bed, not sure what they're going to find. It's another thing when they tell you everything's fine and life goes back to normal. And See, that's when it's really hard to say, take my freedom, isn't it? When everything's going all right. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so as I close, I want to give you an invitation to members of St. Stephen's to say again to Jesus Christ, take my freedom. Take my freedom. For some of you, there may be some areas of your life where you need to say afresh and in a deeper way than you've done before, take my freedom. There may be some of you here who've never really signed up to an apprenticeship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had the baptism and then kind of the apprenticeship lapsed, you never followed it through. And it may be 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it doesn't matter how long it's been, you can still sign up again. Start the apprenticeship. Say to Jesus, take my life. Now can we start to work out what that means? Take my marriage. Take my money. Take my freedom for giving me a sacred love because I trust that you have done everything that's necessary and that you will build my life 
and turn it into what you created it to be. And in giving you my freedom, Jesus, actually I am gaining everything. On the 5th of February, 2006, it was a Sunday, and there was a visiting speaker at St. Stephen's at the morning service. And as he reached the end of his sermon, he hesitated slightly. And he said, you may think what I'm about to do is impertinent, misguided, wrong. But in 30 hours' time, I'm going to be on a plane out of the country. And I feel I ought to issue this invitation to you. I understand that you are looking for a new rector. And I pray that you will find a good rector because leadership in the church is really important. There is a principle that goes something like this, where leaders go, where churches go. But, said the preacher, if you want St. Stephen's to become the church, I know you want it to and become more and more that kind of church, then the people who will be make it that, it's not the rector, it's you. It's a group of men and women and young people who are saying, take my life. Do with it whatever you want. I will step out and trust you. I will take a risk for you and allow you to do whatever it is that you want to do through my life. And when there's a community of people in the local church who are saying that, then God will honor that. I have no idea what that will look like for you. But I'm going to give you an invitation to respond. Neither the preacher nor, I suspect, the congregation who were there, and some of you were there, had any idea what that would look like over the next 13 years. But over this last 13 years, that preacher and you, members of St. Stephen's, we have shared the journey together. And what St. Stephen's has become over those 13 years has come about under God what it has become because there were people there on the 5th of February who came to the front and said, I want to make a stand and I want everybody to see that I am saying to God, take my life, do with it what you want me to what you want to do with it. And since then there have been other people who've joined. And they've done exactly the same thing. Since Stevens, we have worked together for 13 years and our discipleship journey will continue, but on separate roads. We're going to the same destination. 
but as we begin the next chapter of this journey. And as I prefer, prepare to leave shortly, not this time back to the UK, but just up the road. I want to invite you to say for this next chapter, Lord Jesus, take my freedom. Take my money, my wealth, my everything. I don't know what that's going to mean for me for this next period for us at St. Stephen's, but take my freedom. Some of you were at that service on the 5th of February. And I think the first people out were a married couple who looked as if they'd reached the age where they no longer, married people no longer hold hands, and, but they came out holding hands. And then there was a group of people came out. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able to move, and you're a member of St. Stephen's, and as we start the next chapter of our journeys, that is an encouragement to other people, because people will see you come forward, and you are registering to them, I want you to know that whatever else happens, my life belongs to Jesus Christ. And I commit myself to do whatever he will call me to do over this next period. I want to invite you to come to the front. If you're visiting from another church and you want to do that in relation to your church, come and join us. If you're somebody who's perhaps lapsed on the apprenticeship or never even started it, you can come and join as well. I want to start, Jesus, that apprenticeship. Take my freedom. If you can't move because it's dangerous. <laughs> Please don't. But maybe you could raise a hand. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing a song. It's about build my life. What are we building our life on? We're all building our life on something and someone. As Bob Dylan said, everybody's got to serve somebody. The call of discipleship is to build our life on Jesus Christ. And when our life is built on him, then it will flow out to do what he's called us to do. The band are going to start singing. The words are going to be on the screen. And I just invite you to come. And then at the end, I will pray. Let's, let's sing. <laughs>